opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome in, take my hand, say hello to who you know and who you don't and who you can. We'll give promise to your springtime and beginnings to your ends. We'll try not to be cautious, we'll be friends. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Visibilities, where tonight we are going to talk about caring for ourselves as caregivers. And it's probably one of the most difficult things that some of us contend with at times because we always are so much into wanting to give and do as much as we can for our friends and family and those around us who may need some assistance in any number of ways. But we can end up in a situation pretty easily where we're wearing ourselves out, uh, where we we just need to sometimes gather together, gather, gather a little bit of time to ourselves, uh, someplace where you can just have some downtime. And, you know, it might only be five or ten minutes, but it's enough to just kind of recharge your battery on a quick recharge. It's kind of like using one of those fast chargers on your cell phone. Uh, other times it could be, you know, to maybe get some respite care for someone you're taking, you're um, taking, helping to take care of, and actually getting away for a day or two. Nicolette Noise has joined. It can be any number in between. Kathy Blackburn has joined. And if Tom, if you could uh, mute for now, that would be great. Your jaw is just having a grand old time. I'm going to. I'm going to check them out. Here, I'll get them. I already know who it is, and I, that's why I said it. Oh. Um, all right, then. So I want to first thank Larry Gassman for streaming us tonight and kind of being one of our co-hosts in case we have, we have bad weather on the East Coast, so hopefully the West Coast will hold up. And Cindy LeBon is our... Uh, community host this evening and I thank her as well and before we go any further I want to welcome our uh, two presenters for this evening because I discovered recently that they are doing a wonderful program call every week on uh Community on our ACB community calls on just exactly this topic, and that's Deanna Noriega and Tony Lewis. And so, I want to thank the two of you for joining us tonight. And want to hear what? Tell us first of all a little bit about your about your um, support call, and we can kind of go on from there of what can be of, of big assistance to so many of us. Um, this is the third um, 
uh, version of this particular type of support call. Um, originally, it was begun by Linda Yaks when she was um, caregiving for her husband, Dennis. Eventually, Dennis went into a uh, care facility and that became very stressful for her because it was during COVID and she couldn't see him. She could go and stand outside of a window so he could see her and talk to him on a portal, you know, on her phone. But it, you know, it was a difficult time for her the whole way through. And she felt desperately overwhelmed. And so she started the calls because she needed an outlet to talk to others that were trying to do the same thing. After Dennis um, passed away, then Desi took it up and she did it. Um, and her husband also was put into a care facility and that was difficult again during COVID. And she um, dropped off after his death, she had so much on her plate to deal with in the aftermath, including trying to figure out where in the country she wanted to move to because she only stayed in Phoenix because she wanted to be there to see him and to talk to him as much as she could. Um, my situation is, um, I guess I've been a caregiver all my life because I was the oldest of five kids. And a lot of that time, I my mother was a single mom. So she depended on all of us kids to take um, responsibility for ourselves. And since I was the oldest, I was put in charge of three younger brothers. And about the time I was getting ready to leave home, a younger sister and so being the only girl in the house, my mom thought I should rate, you know, uh, rein in three lively little boys. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the only one without vision in my family. So I got to be a really good shot with a pea shooter and a slingshot because I could get them on the fly and they knew that. I would not be able to, to run as fast as they did or climb as quickly to the top of a tree or whatever. Um, but I was a deadly aim. So <laughs> <laughs> I, Everyone was, has their advantage. <laughs> yes, I was totally blind, but I had excellent echolocation. They could not hide from me. I would hear them breathing. <laughs> um, they could not. Uh, and I would finally just put my hands on my hips and stand there and go all right you come down from there and you do your chores now because I know where you sleep and you're going to have to sleep sometime <laughs> 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 and that usually worked so I uh was this the soft-spoken but very firm witch of the house <laughs> <laughs> using my superpowers to control the younger kids and in high school, I was mainstreamed, but a lot of the kids were coming in in their freshman year from the Berkeley School for the Blind, and they were completely overwhelmed when they were stuck in a large public high school, 
And so the person that was kind of the babysitter for the resource room, because he didn't have any real training, he was sort of like a study hall guy, um, would ask me to work with various students if they had issues and problems. Um, because I really didn't need to be there, but every visually impaired student in the class in the in the school had to go there. So they would have nine people in the class eventually and be able to hire someone because they couldn't hire a professionally trained person till they had nine students. Don't ask me why, but that was the rule. <laughs> so for the first three years, um, I was sort of uh, an impromptu coach on how to how to swim upstream in the mainstream <laughs> um, for my classmates that were visually impaired. And then in college, my first job was teaching independent living skills to recently blinded people in my county because there wasn't anyone locally who could do it. So it was my rehab counselor they got me the job and I got paid on the same forms as my readers did for the hours I spent teaching Jack how to mop a floor or use his rotisserie or make jello. And, you know, Becky, you know, some basic housekeeping skills because she was 15 and her mother had recently passed and her father was at work all the time. And so she was expected to take up some of the slack at home. But she didn't know how to do anything because her mother had always done anything, everything for her. So I did things like that. And eventually, then I joined the Peace Corps and I helped build a blind school. <laughs> and when I came home, I was a stay-at-home mom and I became a little league leader. So I was the one on the other end of the phone going, okay, take a deep breath. And listening to some very young, very frightened young woman with a baby thousands of miles away from her mom her sisters or anybody that could help with a small baby that had colic you know and I would talk her down and say okay you've changed her diaper you've done what you could you gave her some medicine for for the gas you need to get a, ha a handle on yourself because you're gonna break if you don't take care of you and then I would tell her to put the baby in the crib, shut the bedroom door, shut her bedroom door, shut the bathroom door, and get into the shower and turn on as high as she could to drown as much of the baby's crying out because they said your hormones are making your nerves react to that baby cry. And if there isn't anything you do, you've got to get a hold of yourself or you know, you'll do something dangerous to you and what's even worse to the baby. Um, and I would just talk them down. Meanwhile, my own two little monkeys were running all around the house going, mommy, mommy. And I'd say, shh, minute, and pat them on the head <laughs> because I, I, I wanted them to know I heard them, but I wanted them to learn that they had to wait. And the way I did that was to always get back to them as soon as I had my hands free. And I would go, what now? What did you want, babe? And, you know, or pick them up or hug them. And my little girls grew up knowing that it didn't matter. They were still the most important people in my life. And I remember 
feeling so um, happy when my two-year-old would run up and put her arms up in the air and say, Mommy, I haven't a bad day. I need a hug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I was teaching them by my example that you have to take care of what you're feeling or you can't, in her case, be a good big sister to her baby sister. It's a very good point. Now, moving ahead a few years, you um, you got married <laughs> and you've had uh, a lot more experience in the caregiving side of it over the last several years. Yeah. And you want to touch <laughs> on that? It's up to well, you. When my kids were in elementary school, my husband's grandmother had Alzheimer's and we recognized it when we first came back on the Peace Corps because she would do things that made absolutely no sense. She was helping me walk across the, the uh, property to the little house that his grandfather had bought when we were still in the Peace Corps and begged us to come live next door to him on 15 acres because he was worried about his wife and he felt too isolated um, to be in his 80s and having a wife that was failing who was a good 15 years younger than he was. Um, so we came and so I was going to go over to the house and I had the baby in a in a baby basket which is what she slept in when we were in Samoa. And I said, would you take the other handle so I can get the door? And she had, you know, a bag of cleaning supplies in her other hand. So I went to open the door and the phone rang and she let go of her handle. And I had to move really fast to catch my baby from rolling out the side of the basket. Oh, dear. Um, so, you know, I helped in the decision making on where we could put her when she became incontinent and he was struggling to keep her clean and she was getting upset and fighting him because she sometimes wouldn't recognize him. And so, you know, I've had to help with those decisions. And then later after she was gone, he started to lose it. <laughs> so um, we were still living, uh, we'd been away and come back and we had moved a mobile home that he was living on uh, in up on the property and we were living in the one that he'd been in before because we'd sold our little five acre piece and now we're down to 13 and three quarters of an acre I think um, and so again I was trying to help make decisions for someone who was beginning to lose the capacity to make decisions for himself that made sense and then you know, um, about eight years ago, my husband went in for a knee replacement because he was walking bone on bone. It didn't work. He went in for a second one. They decided they put in the wrong size. And that one didn't work because he's got a weird thing where his scar tissue grows very rapidly and it freezes the joint. Ah, yes. So he ended up with one leg permanently bent and he managed for a while with a built-up shoe but then he started having neurologic symptoms which his doctor said manifested like parkinson's 
but it didn't have any of the other neurologic signs, no, like no lesions um, when they did, you know, mm-hmm. MRIs and stuff, no lesions on his spine or, but they did discover he had a flea a free floating cancer while they were doing all these bad things and he dodged a bullet because it was the type that if it had attached to one of his internal organs one of those kinds that really moves fast and by the time he felt pain it would have been too late because it was an invasive type of cancer so we got you know that taken care of but the neurologic symptoms started in his left foot. It would have tremors and spasms and be painful. Then he developed diabetes, you know, and then he had developed COPD. And we were living in a three-generational household in the country, two-story two walkout. We were on the bottom floor that went out the back door and to the driveway and where the car was. And I had gotten a job working as an independent living specialist and my daughter was working at the university as a vet tech. And so we were supporting the family and he was the stay at home grandpa. But as he got more and more ill, um, it became evident to me that this situation was not working for him because he was suffering seasonal depression and a lot of pain and that was spoiling his temperament which made him impatient and hostile a lot of times to the children and sounds like me on a regular basis (laughs) so i just finally uh retired in 16 in uh in 2016 um and took my retirement and uh, looked for a house that was all on one level with doors wide enough to accommodate his walker and his wheelchair. He was using a folding manual real wheelchair. So we moved here and I was folding and unfolding that wheelchair. And it wasn't too long before he no longer could use his walker. And then he was not having the arm strength to push himself very far. He could toodle around in the house in it because I took up all the carpeting when I bought the house and had laminate flooring put down and I put up a a six foot privacy fence around the backyard so that my guide dog could have free run so that I could take care of him and not be on the other end of a leash, you know, walking a dog. And he had a pet dog I'd gotten him when he was the stay-at-home grandparent that was a nine-month-old German Shepherd puppy that was already 85 pounds. <laughs> he was a rescue because... Love those German Shepherds. <laughs> yeah, he was a rescue. The people lived in an apartment and had given the puppy that they bought at a pet store to the father for Christmas because he always said he wanted a German Shepherd. But they weren't thinking that they lived in a small apartment with two children and a very tiny backyard. They, they were fortunate to have a backyard at all. But um, this 85-pound puppy was born out of his bored out of his tree and chewed up everything in sight. And when he threw chewed through the, the cable TV connector outside and, and they lost their internet, um, he was up 
posted, please come take this dog off our hands. And um, so I took him because I thought, well, German Shepherds, they're really smart. Let's see what we could do with it. Maybe he could be trained as a service dog. It didn't work out because he was much too big and strong for me to discipline. But he was really smart and he became my husband's companion. He passed away on the 4th of July at 13 and a half. So, uh, yeah, here I am in a, in a house in town. Um, because of what I could afford, I picked a house on a bus route that gave me access to paratransit. But there's nothing close to us. Um, it's about a half mile to a Dollar General that went in last year. And it's about a mile from a small um, grocery store, which is an amazing place because whether I come in with Curtis or pushing his wheelchair and he pushes the cart in front of him, or whether I come in with just my guide dog, um, all I have to do is go to one of the cashiers and um, ask for assistance and I get it. And uh, they are, are very sweet and very accommodating and go out of their way to be as helpful as they can, including the few times when I've run away from home because I'm reaching a fragile state of, of I don't get angry easily, but day in, day out of being yelled at um, can sometimes even make the sweetest temper sour. <laughs> so, so I've learned that was one of the reasons why when my guide dog passed away in April last year, um, I set everything up to be gone for the 16 days I would need to train with a replacement dog because I thought to myself, girl, you're taking on more and more outside of the home as his strength wanes. And you need a good dog. And I realized that the September before my dog passed away because his focus just wasn't there. We weren't doing enough during COVID to keep him sharp. And, oh, yeah. and he decided he'd rather be a couch potato. <laughs> so he'd only work if the weather was perfect. If it was <laughs> raining, no, no, thanks. Take your cane. Um, <laughs> if it was too hot, uh, not now. Uh, I've got things to, 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 you know, to chase in my dreams. Sorry. You know, so I uh, did apply. And then I found out that all of this heavy lifting of, you know, 30 pound bags of dog food for the big dog who ate six cups a day, <laughs> plus my dog who ate two and a half cups a day. Um, and standing up on uh, step ladders in the middle of the night to change the batteries in, in uh, the smoke alarms that were going off. They never did it all at once. They took their turns. And of course, <laughs> uh, just all of this stuff, folding and unfolding the wheelchair for lots and lots of appointments. You walking. must have done a heck of a job on your back. I did. And they said, you know, I'm done. My back says, you can't do this anymore. And I started having neuropathy in my feet and muscle, uh, Charlie horses and um, unable to sleep because my bladder would run all night because it thought I was giving birth. 
<laughs> I'm not going there. We're just not going to touch that one. <laughs> no, just just extreme uh, explain extreme spasms yeah, throughout my neural system, including my bladder. Um, and so I'd have to get up and try to concentrate and calm everything down until I could lie down again. And it was just insane. So I had to have back surgery in December. And then I had six weeks of not lifting anything over 10 pounds. And I thought, well, this is one way to get a, a vacation, but it's not the one I want. <laughs> so, you know, during that time, my friends and my family did step up. My granddaughter even came in and did the laundry one weekend. And that's pretty good for an 18-year-old because they never think of anyone but themselves at that age. <laughs> you know, so... We survived that six weeks, but I was beginning to feel like, what next? Because I can't afford to end up in a wheelchair too. So I've got to start taking better care of me. So we've made a deal and I tell him, I can't do that today. Or I need some time out. I need to go load, lie down. And uh, I've also developed vertigo in the last four years. And when I'm tired or overtaxed, it gets worse. Most of the time, it's just a slight, uh, I've had two glasses of wine on an empty stomach feeling. And no hangover, which is a good thing. <laughs> so. It is. It is. I, I, I've had vertigo off and on for years. So I know exactly what you're referring to. <laughs> Yeah, it's not bad. I, it just means I have to walk more carefully and not stand up on step ladders. <laughs> exactly, especially with nothing around you to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. All I right. Have well, to have a wall or something to touch sometimes. Uh, well, thank you for all of this um, background. And so now um, you and Tony are doing this uh, call. Well, Where? Tony is also my coping mechanism because he came on the call and he gave such good advice and has such a lovely, calm voice and way of presenting. And he's such a great listener. That's that what caught, that's what exactly <laughs> what caught my attention when I went on recently. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was one of those days when he was flying solo because I yes. needed to go to the dentist. <laughs> there you go. But I didn't so, want Anthony, to leave the community down, you know. Right. So let's kind of touch base with Anthony a bit at this point. Um, okay. Can you hear me? All right. There you are. I was just looking to make sure you were unmuted. Um, yes. I know the night, the day that I came on, I was just so impressed with, with, with that, with your demeanor, and with your 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 listening you know you, you do you ask great questions you give people lots of time to to uh express themselves and you obviously have somewhat of a background in this it would seem to me anyhow am i correct well i i think it's uh the school of hard knocks when it comes to the caregiving <laughs> i think it is uh, for many of us you're right yeah. And, and, you know, it's like I said on the call, I think that it makes you into a different person than you were. Before. 
before when you are caring for somebody that you care about. Um, I ended up caring for uh, uh, my former wife, Susan, got cancer. And she had stage four lung cancer, never smoked a day in her life. And um, she just felt like she had a cold or maybe allergies or whatever. And then the doctor, they found uh, that she had some uh, some stuff in her lungs and um, she had to do chemo. So my story is I've had two people um, cause I want to hear from you guys. I'll just, uh, cut to it. You know, I think that some of you guys may want to interject too. two people and a guide dog, all very important beings in my life that all had cancer that I've had to care for. Um, really? yeah, you, my, my guide dog, thank, thank God he made it through his, um, but I'll get to that one, uh, though, as he sleeps here on my foot. <laughs> um, yeah it was um you know like i said when you have to do when you're experiencing taking care of somebody no matter who you are you it really does change you i can't say that i was uh the most caring person in the world i think there was a lot of selfishness and you know who i was as a person but i think what really changes you is that when you realize that person who's been with you through thick and thin, uh, those times. Anthony, I hate to interrupt you, but you keep fading in and out on us. Oh, okay. Let me get a little closer. I have a new computer, so I'm, ah. it's not. Can you hear me better? Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. When you have a person who really cares about you and who's been with you through thick and thin, and then all of a sudden you have the possibility that that person's not going to be there anymore. It's life-changing. What happened with Susan uh, eventually was one day I was out and I came home and she started screaming, get out of my house. Who are you? You shouldn't be here. And I thought, what? What's, what's going on? And she had peed all over the place and defecated and, and so I knew this wasn't right. And it scared the bejesus out of me. So I called 911. Um, she got taken in an ambulance to Kaiser. And we had people coming to visit that same day that this all happened. So I was trying to call them, tell them not to come, but they already were on plane. So it was a major chaotic day. So um, I had to stay there until the place got cleaned up and they got settled. And then I told them I had to go to the hospital to find out what was going on. So went to the hospital and um, we knew we were really in trouble when they, you know, what they ask you when you're uh, with somebody who's in distress, they have a list of questions that they ask you, what's today's date? Um, where do you live? Um, who's the president? Yes. And and then when I got to who's the president, she said, Nathan, our upstairs neighbor. Then I knew we were in trouble when Nathan was president. So um, they, you know, talked to the, uh, this was all happening in, in emergency. And, and of course, in, when you're in emergency in, in that situation, you're there for hours. So we were in emergency for about 12 hours. 
And so eventually I came home and the uh, next day the doctors called me in and they told me that her cancer had advanced to her brain and that she had cancer and that she was going to be in a hospital hospice and she would probably only live two more weeks or so. So, of course, I was absolutely devastated. I couldn't believe it. You know, I thought, oh, yeah. my goodness, you know, this two weeks. And so they said, well, what we'll do is we'll put her in a care home and we'll um, and I said, well, can you put her someplace close to where I, I live? And so they did put her in a place uh, close to the town where I was. And uh, she was on hospice. And when they put you on uh, palliative care, they basically give you very little food and they give you a sponge uh, in your mouth so you get a little bit of water and moisture and the like. And so what happened then was, amazingly enough, um, she did go into a coma. She didn't speak for three days. And then a bunch of us were just sitting around her bed in this care home. And we're just talking. And all of a sudden, she says, I'm hungry. This was after three days. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so uh, my friend went and got her a smoothie. Now, she she's a. Uh, She's a nurse and she said, you know, I wouldn't get her a sandwich. And my friend said, well, no, she couldn't, she couldn't do that. But she got her a smoothie, so she had that. And eventually she got better. It was pretty sick. Yeah, it was amazing. And so she became more and more aware. She knew who I was. Um, she figured out where she was. She didn't know how she got there, but she figured out she was in this uh, uh, care uh, nursing home. And she kept saying, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And I said, I don't know. I said, I don't, I said, you can't do, I, I don't know how that's going to work because at that point she couldn't walk anymore. Um, you know, the cancer in her brain affected how she walked. She didn't have any balance whatsoever. Um, she didn't have bladder control or anything. And I thought, well, how am I going to do this if she comes home? But she was so miserable in this place. I said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So, you know, I want people to know, and, and those of you who are caring for people, it, that it's, it's pretty costly when, you're, when you make that decision that you're going to take care of somebody. It does cost a lot of money to bring other people in. So I did my best to learn how to, you know, when you have a person who all of a sudden is super independent and you have to give them a bath, uh, you have to help them toilet, um, you have to help them transfer, dress them. And what was helpful for me also was that she was on hospice. So on hospice, you get a lot of the, the benefits of having a person that will come in a couple of times a week. And so they do help with some of those uh, types of things. Like they, they give you, as uh, what Terry was saying, you do get some respite when the hospice nurse comes in or when the hospice aide comes in. Because the hospice aide does a lot of those things that, that you're doing, but it's basically set up to give you a break. And that was extremely helpful. And I am so indebted to this day to a lot of the nurses who came in 
dressed her, uh, made her feel like herself again. So went through that and that was really hard. And I think Terry, you're so right about giving yourself a break because it's a 24 seven job that you're taking on. And you were pretty much the person, it just becomes you, the person that you're taking care of. And you're in this little room, if it's your bedroom or some people uh, set up their living room with a hospital bed. And you're just with that person all the time in this little room. And so your, your world is pretty small. It's a very good point. And I think that's also one of the questions that I'd like to get into a bit and and ask our audience as well is did you have you in the past started feeling guilty about feeling that you need some time to yourself uh, i personally grew up with uh, doing a lot of caregiving with uh family family members and and close relatives and friends and friends who were losing people and and but there's also the people that you're living with um perhaps that i know i've talked with several people that you know their spouse or their partner or their child or uh their parent or what have you um it just needs an inordinate a, a different type of care than they then then it, it creating a different type of lifestyle than we had in the past you know if one of them's always paid the bills and now you're taking some of that over or uh you know just various and sundry household chores that kind of thing does i'm wondering to me what, what has struck me is that feeling of kind of kind of like a feeling of guilt of I shouldn't, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't regret having do, to do this or I shouldn't resent having to do this. And um, I'm wondering if that comes through to people very often. I think that to some degree you can't help but feeling, I don't know if it's, re well, it can be resentful, but also you feel exhausted because it's just so much it's managing the pills it's coordinating all these strangers that are coming in and out of your house it's having medical medical people doubt you um you know like uh you know sometimes people would come in and they're wondering well uh, you know, as a blind person, you have other people questioning you. So there's all this other stuff that there's a lot of frustration, I think, that you have to to deal with when you're coordinating all this stuff. Uh, and I, I could certainly understand why people would feel resentful for it, because it is it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, And I, I'm not sure that resentful is more the thing. I think it's almost more embarrassed embarrassed um and just feeling like this isn't right i shouldn't i shouldn't feel this way yeah, that kind yes. of thing yes. um but i would like to open up our call this evening to anyone else who's on here i know there is we have a good number of people 
and I know that a good number of, of them have um, dealt, you know, have been living with um, some kind of a caregiving situation, whether it's uh, you know, any any relative, a friend, or um, a sibling, or that, um, and just kind of the feelings that any things that they can recommend that they did to have some space, you know, when they need to, or to, to recognize that they need it sometimes even. Um, I know I've gotten to, I mean, I have an absolutely crazy, insane one that in my life, because I've got two people at the moment living with me that just require a lot of um, thinking ahead of what, exactly what to say to get them to to be as cooperative as possible. And so my favorite time in the year, of I mean, of the day, is I'm always using the excuse I have to go to the bathroom. It's the one place where I'm alone. <laughs> uh, well, but for me, I, my dog needs a lot of work because he's young. So I, I can, I've really got to go walk a few blocks with Flynn. <laughs> so he gets me out, which is kind of what I was looking for there. And he's doing something else for me that Curtis used to do, but I don't see that person as much. Flashes of him every now and then. And I think that's yeah. the hardest part. It's one of the things we could always do was laugh because we both have wicked senses of humor. And um, <laughs> so it. I miss laughing with him. Yeah, I think that's exactly. Yeah, that's uh, you're you're hitting more on the no head of what I was kind of referring to. But let's um, let's take a few calls because we do have some hands raised. The first one is Connie Bateman. I know Connie's been quite the caregiver in the past. Hi there, Hi, Connie. Hi, thank you so much for this call, and I agree with Tony. Being the caregiver was extremely exhausting. I was the caregiver for my husband who was diagnosed with liver cancer, never drank. I mean, wasn't a drinker other than an occasional beer. And I was still working, actually. Um, and he did not want to remain in the hospital or the skilled nursing facility. He wanted to be home. He made that very clear. So I did mm. everything I could to keep him home. And we were not used to having people in our home. We hardly ever had visitors. But once he got sick, we had home health care workers, caregivers, hospice workers coming in and out of the house. And being blind and dealing with all that is very stressful because they, they, they borrow your scissors and then they don't put them back. Or, you know, they move things and they don't put them back where they belong. And, you know, just... You know, it just kind of builds up after a while. And the other thing is, you know, since we don't drive, and if transportation is not part of your healthcare plan, then you have to arrange rides with paratransit, Uber, and Lyft, because he stopped being able to drive. He became totally homebound. His cognitive skills went down, and he became totally dependent on me. I had to take over the bills. You know, I had to take over everything, basically. And I remember one day trying to go to work and we had to give him this medicine to keep the toxins 
from go, going from his liver to his brain because that's one of the things that was causing his cognitive issues. And right. I was in I was trying to get to work and I had to take paratransit by then. You know how that goes. They, and and I, I said, Ron, take this medicine. And he was still, you know, hesitating, hesitating. And, and time was going by and I went, take this, drink this, drink this. Drink. I feel so guilty to this day. <laughs> I was like, drink this, drink this, drink this. And he went, Connie, 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 I'm going to drink. But it just took him longer to process everything, you know, and just I felt really guilty about that. But So, yeah, it's it's when you're blind and you're primary caregiver and you've got to deal with all these people coming over and you and you don't drive and the roles are reversed. And, you know, he wasn't driving anymore. You know, if I fell down, he took care of me. But now I was taking care of him and it was. It was hard. It was really it's, hard. It's a, it's a real change of role. And then when he started declining, fortunately, that was during my winter break. So I did not need to go to 24-7 because uh, I was home more. But he was declining and I was already grieving his loss because I knew he was dying. We went to hospice by October of 2019. And then by December 27th, he was the last time he talked to me was Christmas Eve, and he told me he was ready to go home. Then by Christmas morning, he was in a coma in, our, in the hospital bed in the living room. And then when he passed, I was with him alone, and he took his last breath, and I heard him take his last breath. So it's something you don't ever get over, you know? It's, it's very yeah. traumatic. And um, until you've been there and watched... If you haven't been there watching your loved one slowly die, it's you have no you don't have a clue what it's like until you've been there. So anyway, thanks for letting me share. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for sharing with us. Nicolette, you had your hand raised and I think I accidentally yeah. lowered it on you. Uh, my hi, thank you. <laughs> thank you. My uh, my dad had Alzheimer's, but he lived to be 95, but it hadn't progressed that long. But um, I had a really easy time with him. He lived downstairs. But several of my friends had very, very difficult times with their parents. And I would spend a lot of time with them helping out. And one of the dangers I saw very quickly that they didn't even see was that slowly but surely they would start to get a little aggravated with their parents. And that's the kind of thing that leads to elder abuse. So that's one of the reasons why it's so absolutely necessary to take your breaks and to be able to get away from the situation because you don't even, they didn't even realize that they were changing in their attitudes and that they were they were really being quite mean to their parents. So as an outsider, um, not having had those kind of problems, but I could see quite easily what was happening. And so each, each of, there were four of them in, in different situations and they, they actually went to counseling to get help so that they would make sure that that didn't happen. So that's something that we have to be really, really careful of not to get angry because it's not their fault. Pretend that they're children, pretend that they're children and treat them that way, you know, give them time to do things, give them enough time and, and, and don't, don't get angry because they don't understand. They get confused and, and that's really sad to see. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. And, you know, repeating something, being asked the same question four days in a row. You know, it does. It, it can get very, very frustrating. <laughs> Sometimes you know it's every I, 20 I, minutes. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I, I make a comment I, about that? Sure. About the, okay. 
Um, I, I've been volunteering at the Lighthouse for about 25 years, and we had bingo. And one of our one of our friends, I used to go and get her and take her. And she was asking every five minutes, um, oh, Nikki, did you pay for my dinner? Yeah, I took care of it. Um, did you did you get the ride? I said, yeah, we're going back in a taxi. And and people would walk by and they say, Betty, you already asked that question. So I took her to the bathroom and I went back in there and, and there were about 30 people there. And I said, hey, guys, I said, look, Betty doesn't remember. So if you can't say anything or if you can't just answer her question, please don't say anything because she doesn't know that she's heard it 10 times. Just answer the question and smile. We all love her. You know, and, and but they were acting really they were very mean to her and and uh, but they stopped. And when she came back in, everybody applauded and people came over to the table and they started talking to her and interacting with her. So, you know, if you try to nip it in the bud when you see it, it it's really helpful. But they they don't know that they've asked the question. I mean, my dad used to do that, too, but he only asked the same question about five times a day instead of every 10 minutes. So <laughs> I guess I, I guess I was lucky there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You know, it's it's indeed. Go ahead, Larry, uh, Tony. Yeah, I I think also too. Um, you just got to learn to say I'm sorry too when you do slip, um, and and maybe you do say something mean or in a way that you you regret. I mean, I remember one time um, uh, Susan started yelling in the middle of the night, and I got up, got out of bed, tripped over something fell down and she had to go to the bathroom. And so I said, you're yelling because you have to go to the bathroom, you know? And, and so, and it scared me because I thought maybe she fell out of bed or, or something terrible happened. But mm -hmm. sometimes you just get caught up in the moment. And then when things calm down, you know, you say, I'm sorry, you know, I, you know, I, I know you're scared or I know, you know, because I think a lot of it is for people too, is that when you feel out of control or you're losing control, um, and that's, you know, the person that you're caring about, they're frustrated. And where else, who else are they going to take their frustrations out on except for you because you're there, you know? It's a good point. It's a very good point, actually. Um, Kathy Casey. If you, there you right. are. Good, Hi, evening. Good evening to everyone. Um, I'll try to make this brief. <clears throat> um, my husband uh, developed pancreatic cancer. And so they had did a surgery. They called it the Whipple procedure. And they set up. And then once that healed, then he started with the chemo and the radiation and all that. He went through all that. They did another PET scan and said, nope, the cancer's all clear. Well, yeah, it might've been clear for about a month. And then things started happening. He ended up with a stroke and took him to the hospital and make a long story short, it ended up affecting his speech. Now here's somebody who was a dispatcher for 30 some odd years. And that's what he lived for was to talk on the radio and to be able to talk and to not have your speech and laying there in a hospital bed, he was as frustrated as anything and banging on the bed and banging on the mattress and, you know, we had to calm him down. But it, it, um, it, one of the things is, yeah, it's, it's harder on the caregiver than it is on the patient. 
um, because you're the one that um, has to do all this stuff. But what I would recommend is unfortunately, you've got to be your own advocate for them because the social worker that was working in the hospital really was not doing um, a good enough job to find a nursing home or rehab center to put him in. And so I was doing all the phone calls and doing all the follow-up. And I managed to get him into getting an opening into a, a place not too far away. Because again, like somebody else had said, it needed to be a place where I could get to. Right. So, um, you know, unfortunately, you've got to be your own advocate. And my sister-in-law was like amazed at what I could do and get all that stuff done. She goes, I wouldn't have even thought of some of the stuff you did. I said, well, you know, unfortunately, these guys aren't doing the job. I said, I'm doing all the work. So. Yeah, and, you know, I think everybody gets to that point at some point, at some time in the in the journey. And you anyway, know what's, let's get what's back. To, let me get back before we run out of time. To Anthony, you can comment on this at the same time. But um, I, what I'd really like is for the uh, you and, and or Diana to let people know a little bit more about your calls on, is it Tuesday morning? I think Wednesday. It's Tuesday. <laughs> Wednesday morning. Yes. Sir, uh, I know it's the middle of the week. And 20 seconds. I know. Thank you, Cindy. Um, just, just, just so that people can, uh, who feel that they would like to, will be able to uh, pay attention to uh, join your call. It's called Caring and Sharing. And it's a, it's a support group, so there's not a lot of structure to it. It's based on what people need when they come in. Do they need to vent? Do they need a question answered? Do they need a solution for a problem? Or they do they need just for you to listen so they can get their feelings out? It's um, We meet every Wednesday morning um, at... 10 o'clock Eastern, and um, anyone is welcome, former caregivers that want to share their expertise, that's how Tony came in, and, um, and he was a tremendous help, and that's why when I've had times when I didn't want to cancel the call for because I needed to do something, but I really did need to have a break um, here at home, or I had medical things that had to be at a certain time. And there, you know, that's you take your appointment when you get it. Um, so everyone is welcome, um, even if you're not in direct care. If you're part of the care circle in a family that and you want to know what to say or how to help without ruffling feathers and making your siblings upset with you because you know they think they've got it all figured out or that you can't contribute um you know whatever your situation is you're welcome to come and uh, well i thank you very much and I just want to give Anthony, Anthony had a point that he was going to 
-hmm. make with Kathy Casey and uh, any other last thoughts? As oh, no, I, I just I just wanted to uh, share what Deanna said. I mean, Deanna is really terrific. As you can tell, she's a very calm and centering person uh, herself, and it is a very welcoming place. And I would say for anyone who is uh, taking care of someone or who needs support, what you know, because we're, you know, as people, a lot of us are older and people in our lives are older and things change or or just in general if you're going through something and you just need the time uh it's a very informal room and and deanna makes it a very uh welcoming place and uh we just had a person in in the group who just uh lost her mother and um, she checked in and felt very good about coming in and checking in with the group and sharing that and i think that's what what people need uh in those situations so yeah and and i'm just so glad terry that you came in because you gave us the chance to come and visit your room and this is a very really wonderful place in and of itself i mean i really like your your energy um that, i'm not sure you... i have as much as i used to but <laughs> <laughs> who does what you have what you have is pretty good though I, I, I do like it. thank you for having us come in you still do you, and that's the important thing. <laughs> Deanna knows what you means. What, what that means as far as me, because we've known each other, oh, God, it's got to be close on to 25 years. Yeah, at least. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how time flies when you're having fun. All right. I want to thank you all for being with us again. Larry, Cindy, Deanna, Anthony. It's been I think it's been a very enlightening conversation for everyone. And those who would be comfortable with it, please don't forget to check the community list on Wednesday for Wednesdays at 10, 10 o'clock Eastern. Mm -hmm. um, you West Coast and Hawaiians, get up early for it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we don't mind if you come in for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you can spare, because sometimes caregivers, their time isn't their own. That's true, too. That's a very good point. Anyway, thank you all very much for a very good call. And we will be having another very interesting one next week. And I will tell you about it during the week because I don't have it confirmed yet. But other than that, I want to wish you all a great week, great serenity in whichever end of the caregiver cycle, caring cycle you're on, and wish you all good night.